This morning's scripture is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Typically at GCF, we preach through books of the Bible. That's called consecutive exposition. We've been in the Gospel of John for a long time. We'll pick that up again, Lord willing, um, in November. But we're taking a break from that series to do a topical series called Restoring Sexual Sanity. Now, why this series? Many of you have asked me, why are we doing this series? Uh, And it's for several reasons. I want to start out by reading a quote by Martin Luther, one of my heroes from the 16th century. And he said this very, very perceptively. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefields besides is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Satan is currently attacking one specific point. He is aggressively attacking one point in our culture, and that is the whole subject of marriage, family, gender, and sexuality. And so as Christians, we must speak up and let our voices be heard on this important issue. And that's because um, our culture is increasingly, you're all taking pictures of this quote. If you want this quote, I can give it to you. It's actually on the flyer, the handout at the Welcome Center. I see a bunch of cameras up taking pictures. If you want the quote, grab the flyer, the Welcome Center, with all the dates on it. Anyways, what was I saying? Okay, right now our, our culture is very, very confused on this issue. And as a result, there is all kinds of heartache and destruction at miserable lives, broken families and broken relationships. And the Word of God speaks very clearly to these issues, and the Word of God lays out a plan for humanity that leads to joy and peace and human flourishing. And we want to celebrate what the Bible says about these subjects. Now, if you look at the flyer, it's going to appear behind me, uh, it has the plan. So this week, marriage... Can you guys see that? Yep. Next week, singleness. 
and then masculinity, femininity, and then October 15th, biblical sexuality. Now, you'll notice that one has a little asterisk by it. Uh, five of these talks are going to be rated PG, and there's going to be an activity for the children uh, during the sermon in the fellowship hall. So if you want to pull your kids out, I understand, although I would encourage you to keep your kids in, and that's because, did you know the average first exposure to porn is age five, Okay. Your kids are going to be getting this, whether they're homeschooled, private schooled, public schooled, the, the, the world's message is permeating everything right now. So it's up to you. Uh, we are going to provide an activity for parents that want to pull their kids out of some of these more sensitive talks, especially younger kids. But if your kids are 10, 12, 11, 13, I would encourage you to keep them in, but it's up to you as parents. Uh, biblical sexuality, and by the way, it's rated PG, not PG-13, okay? Biblical sexuality and then transgenderism, and then we're taking a break for Reformation Sunday, homosexuality part one and part two, and then pornography. So all really important topics that the Word of God clearly addresses. Now, um, I have never received so much input before a sermon series. A lot of you are nervous, okay? But you gotta recognize a couple of things. My goal is to constantly address three different audiences, okay? The first audience is everyone under the age of 40. And they are constantly being told by the world, do whatever you want, whatever feels right and good, just do it. Their convictions are being weakened every week. And so I want to give them a very, very clear perspective on what the Bible says about these important issues. I want to strengthen their resolve to obey Christ. The second group are those of you who struggle with pornography, gender dysphoria, same-sex attraction, broken marriages. I want to give you the hope of the gospel. There is hope and grace and power for change, no matter how broken you are. Third, there's a group of people, you have friends that are really broken and confused, and you're wondering, how do I talk to my friends um, about these sensitive subjects and minister the grace of God to them? Now, some of you want me just to address one of those groups, Others are afraid I'm, I'm only going to address one of those groups, okay? I'm going to address all three of those groups throughout this series. And I'm not a sociologist, an anthropologist, an, econo an economist. I'm a pastor. So I'm going to primarily focus on what the Word of God has to say about these really important issues. And there's so much that could be said, but as a pastor, my tool, my only authority is the Word of God. And as a Christian, that's your only authority too. So we're going to try to focus our attention to what the Word of God has to say about these subjects. I'm getting some crackle, aren't I? Okay, I'm just gonna ignore it, and some of you can pray. <laughs> this is a brand new mic too, I don't know what's happening. All right, with, with all that um, introduction out of the way, and, and one more thing, please let me encourage you to invite your friends to this series. Grab one of these flowers on the way out and invite a friend, because what the Bible says about these subjects is life-giving, and it's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the scriptures. We thank you that the word of God is so clear on these important subjects, and we thank you that the word of God brings life, joy, and peace, and the gospel of Jesus Christ brings hope. Father, we pray that as this series unfolds, that our, our convictions would be strengthened, that there'd be lots of gospel transformation happening in all of our lives. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Increasingly, our culture frowns on the institution of marriage. Comedian and theologian Chris Rock said this, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? Only two options. You can be single and lonely, that's bad, or married and bored, maybe even worse. Many folks share his sentiments on Christian marriage. Tim Keller describes the demise of Christian marriage in his fantastic book, The Meaning of Marriage. He writes this, over the last 40 years, the leading marriage indicators in the United States have been in steady decline. The divorce rate is nearly twice the rate it was in 1960. In 1970, 89% of all births were to married parents, but today, only 60, actually, it's, this was 15 years ago, it's actually more like 50% today. today, and today, only 60, roughly 50% are. Most tellingly, over 72% of American adults were married in 1960, but only 50% were in 2008. Again, Keller writes, more recently, a Pew Research Center survey that found that nearly 40% of Americans believed that marriage is becoming obsolete, which explains why so few are getting married, and those that are getting married are getting married later and later and later in life because marriage seems irrelevant and life-destroying. To make matters worse, people can't even define what marriage is. Andreas Kostenberger, a great scholar, says this, for the first time in its history, Western civilization is confronted with the need to define the meaning of the terms marriage and family, which means that we are in big, big trouble as a society. And that brings us to talk one of this series, Restoring Sexual Sanity. Why begin with the subject of Christian marriage? Well, that's because Christian marriage is the foundation of civilization. Furthermore, Christian marriage is the foundation for this entire sermon series. It provides a baseline for all the subjects we're going to cover in the next nine weeks. So to help us understand the importance of marriage, we're going to look at marriage from four different perspectives. We're going to look at marriage this morning from the perspective of the biblical storyline, marriage at creation, marriage after the fall, marriage after redemption, and then marriage in heaven or marriage in the new creation. So first is marriage at creation. To understand the importance of marriage, we have to understand why God created marriage in the first place. And that brings us to Genesis 1 and 2, and there we learn so many glorious things about God's plan for marriage. Well, what do we learn from Genesis 1 and 2? we learn that marriage was the very first social institution. God created three institutions, marriage, the church, and the state, and God created marriage first because marriage lays the foundation for every other institution in civilization. Marriage is very, very important to the thriving of all civilizations, which is why the collapse of marriage equals the destruction of our society. This is happening right before our eyes. In addition, marriage was designed to produce children, and clearly GCF North understands this verse. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These verses are clear that marriage is designed to produce offspring. 
Does that mean we should have as many kids as humanly possible? Probably not, but at least 13. It's funny, we, we never ever talk about the number of kids at GCF that are appropriate. I mean, five is the number you're supposed to have. Um, but it's, uh, most families here love kids, and so they have lots of them, and we're so thankful. Because marriage uh, is meant to produce children ordinarily. Sometimes it doesn't, but ordinarily it's designed to produce children, and children are a huge blessing to the human race and to families. Furthermore, marriage was designed for companionship. Genesis 2:18. Then the Lord God said, "It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him." Genesis 2:23. Then the man said, "This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." Your spouse is supposed to be your closest and dearest friend. That's God's plan. That's God's design. That's God's ideal for marriage. Referring to this, the great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry writes these words, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to be ruled over him or to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. Now contrast this to bachelor parties where the groom walks around with a ball and chain around his ankle as a foreshadowing of things to come. Nothing is further from the biblical portrayal of marriage. In marriage, your spouse is supposed to be your closest and dearest friend. That's God's plan. Marriage was also designed to show equality and distinction. Genesis 1, 27 to 28, Moses writes this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This text clearly indicates that both male and female are made in God's image. Therefore, they are equal in value, equal in worth, equal in glory. They're both saved the same way. They're both given spiritual gifts. They are equal. And as a result, everywhere Christianity goes, it liberates women. This is an established historical fact. If you don't believe me, read the book Jesus Skeptic or read Nancy Piercy's fantastic new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. In chapter two, she argues very clearly that everywhere Christianity goes, it liberates women. And that's because male and female are both made in God's image. Yet this text also indicates that there are distinct roles between male and female in the context of marriage. We see indicators of this in Genesis 1 and 2, and, and this, by the way, these indicators happen before the fall. They're not the result of the fall, they're there before the fall. Um, Adam was created first, then Eve, suggesting that he had a leadership role in this relationship. Eve was created as a helper for Adam, Genesis 2.18. Um, Adam named Eve, and naming was a symbol of authority in the ancient Near East. The human race was named man, not woman, coming from the word for Adam, indicating uh, that man or Adam is meant to represent the human race and not Eve. And after the fall, God holds 
Adam, not Eve, responsible for Eve's sin. All indicators that although male and female are equal in worth, there are differences in function. The husband is called to be the head of his wife, and the wife is called to follow her husband. And this pattern is is upheld throughout the Bible, Ephesians 5, 25, 1 Peter 3, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2, 10 to 12. So as Christians, we should not be embarrassed by these distinctions. God's plan is good and wonderful, equal in value, different in role. And that's God's plan. And Christians should celebrate this. And when this is happening, it leads to flourishing. Furthermore, Marriage was designed to produce a lasting, intimate, one-man, one-woman relationship. Well, how do we know? Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I'll, I'll talk a lot more about that last part in my sermon on biblical sexuality in a couple of weeks, but the point I want to emphasize here is simply this. Marriage is designed to be a very close, personal, relational, intimate situation where husband and wife come together as one flesh. Adam is commanded to hold fast to his wife. Now, these verses rule out several things. They rule out adultery, They rule out divorce, they rule out polygamy, they rule out fornication, and they rule out homosexuality. Why? Because none of them are one husband holding fast to his one wife. And a lot more on those subjects as the series unfolds. Hold fast to your wife implies that the husband is the one who is designed to cultivate a relationship with his wife. He is the one who is meant to initiate communication and romance and intimacy. And husbands, how are we doing in that regard? How are we doing? Most of us are probably failing, but God is gracious. But the plan is for husbands to be the one to hold fast, to cultivate romance and relationship and intimacy and tenderness with their wives. Well, what can we learn from Genesis 1 and 2 about God's design for marriage so much, how can we apply some of these ideas? Well, God's design for marriage is really, really good. It's ideal. It leads to flourishing. Consider the results of several recent well-researched studies. Marriage lengthens the lifespan of men and women. That's a fact. Marriage protects women from economic harm. Marriage protects mothers from violent crime. Mothers who have never been married are more than twice as likely to suffer violent crime. Uh, Marriage massively uh, lowers welfare. Did you know that if every couple in America got married and stayed married, there'd be virtually no poverty in America? All the stats indicate that when a husband and wife get married, boyfriend and girlfriend, get married, and stay married, welfare is almost unheard of. Poverty is almost unheard of. Now, sociologists are hard-pressed to admit that. There's a very simple solution to poverty. Get married and stay married, 
and more than likely you're not going to experience poverty. Those are the facts of sociology. Children from homes where mom and dad stay married are seven times less likely to live in poverty, six times less likely to commit suicide, less than half as likely to commit crime, less than half as likely to get pregnant out of wedlock, uh, develop better academically and socially, and they'll be healthier physically and emotionally when they reach adulthood. Tim Keller writes this, during the last two decades, the great preponderance of research evidence shows that people who are married consistently show much higher degrees of satisfaction with their lives and those who are, than those who are single, divorced, or living with a partner. Also, children who grow up in married two-parent families have two to three times more positive life outcomes than those who do not. The overwhelming verdict, then, is that being married and growing up with parents who are married are enormous boosts to our well-being. Again, God's design for marriage leads to human flourishing. When we ignore these designs, it leads to destruction. One scholar writes this, since virtually the dawn of humanity, marriage has been the bedrock of human social structure. In fact, British anthropologist J.D. Unwin studied 86 civilized and uncivilized cultures spanning 5,000 years and found that the most uh, prosperous cultures were those that maintained a strong marriage ethic. Every civilization that abandoned this ethic, including the Roman, Babylonian, and Sumerian empires, experienced demise soon after liberalizing their sexual practices, which means that America is in big trouble. It's unraveling before our eyes because we're abandoning God's plan for marriage. All this data and much more is proof, apologetic proof, that when you do things God's way, it leads to flourishing. God's plan is the best plan. When you ignore God's plan for marriage and life, it leads to all kinds of pain and misery. But God's plan works. Now, is it possible to thrive with one parent? Yes, by the grace of God, that can happen. But ordinarily, kids need a mom and a dad. Is it possible to thrive as a single? Yes, that's possible. Jesus was single. I'm gonna preach a whole sermon next week on singleness. Come back if you're single. But ordinarily, people get married. Now, some of you grew up in very broken homes, and you're thinking, I don't want to experience what my parents experienced, bickering and fighting and abuse all the time, joyless, sexless, loveless marriage. No thanks. I'm gonna remain single. And I get that. I understand that temptation to not get married, even though my parents had a wonderful marriage. But if that's you, there is hope for you. There's hope. It is possible to have a wonderful, fulfilling marriage by the grace of God when you follow God's instructions. That is possible. Ultimately, God designed marriage to glorify himself, which is why Satan is so hell-bent on destroying it, which leads us to the second point or the second scene. So first is marriage at creation. Second is marriage after the fall. And this is the bad news. Satan seeks to destroy God's glorious plan in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 1 to 7 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Satan tried to destroy God's design for marriage by twisting and subverting God's plan for marriage, God's roles in marriage. Remember, God created Adam to be the head, to lead his wife, to protect her, to watch over her. And instead, when Satan comes to Eve and lies to her and tempts her and says, this fruit is delicious. If you eat it, nothing bad will happen. You'll know good and evil. You'll, you'll be like God. And instead of Adam saying, Eve, don't do that. That's a bad idea. Adam stood by, verse 6. He was with her, and he watched passively and did nothing. Male passivity is the cause of 10,000 marital problems going back to the garden. Now, some guys err on the side of dominance, being jerks. But most guys, in my experience, are just like Adam. They err on the side of passivity. They're passive. And as a result of Adam's passivity, he let his wife lead him into sin. He was not protecting her or providing for her or leading her. And I'm going to argue in a few weeks that the very essence of masculinity is leadership, provision, and protection, and Adam failed miserably in all three. As a result, the world has known nothing but death, destruction, and carnage ever since. What did Satan do? He subverted the roles. Adam followed and Eve led. As a result, catastrophe reigns. Now, Satan is still trying to destroy God's design for marriage. Thousands of years later, our country's on the verge of legalizing polygamy. That will happen. It's just a matter of time. And why not, based on our culture's ethic? Homosexual marriage is legal in all 50 states. Teen sex is ubiquitous. Third wave feminism is wreaking havoc on families. Pornography is wreaking havoc on marriages. Transgenderism is ruining children's lives. For the first time in our culture, less than 50% of adults are married. And adultery is celebrated in romance novels, on TV shows, and the inf infamous Ashley Madison website. Now, this weekend, my son was in a tennis tournament at Whitworth. And really good tennis players will start a match, and they'll try to exploit their opponent's weakness. They'll ask the question, what is my opponent's weakness? Is it his serve, his return of serve, his second serve? Is it his backhand, his forehand, his net game? Is it short balls? How can I exploit this person's weakness? And after a few games, you may realize my opponent's weakness is clearly his or her backhand. So I'm going to hit every ball to their backhand. I'm going to exploit that weakness, and I'm going to defeat them. Satan is no different. He knows 
that one of the most important things holding civilization together and glorifying God is Christian marriage. And so he's going to put all of his guns, all of his cannons, all of his tanks on this one subject, marriage. He hates marriage. He wants to destroy humans because we're made in God's image. And so he is aiming all of his weapons at this one area, marriage. This is the weakness in our culture right now. Well, is there any hope for us? If Satan is constantly attacking marriage, attacking us made in his image, is there hope? And the answer, of course, is a resounding yes, which brings us to the third scene. So marriage at creation, marriage at the fall, and third, marriage after redemption. Ephesians 5, 22 to 32 glorious picture of what marriage is supposed to look like in the light of the gospel. Ephesians 5, 22 and following, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Notice the Genesis 1 and 2 language there. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What does marriage have to do with redemption or grace? Everything, everything. One of the primary reasons that God created marriage was to show the whole world how much his own son, Jesus Christ, loves his bride, the church. And how does Jesus love his bride? By suffering and dying naked over a garbage dump. He gives away everything. He dies to cleanse his bride, to redeem her, to forgive her, to wash her clean. Husbands, that's the model What does it mean to be a Christian husband? It means primarily we take up our crosses, we suffer, and we die daily to meet the needs of our wife and our children. That's what the gospel tells us. That's our privilege, that's our responsibility to daily die to our own needs. And wives, what is your responsibility? Well, you're like the church. You are called to joyfully submit and follow Christ. Follow your husband as the church joyfully submits and follows Christ. Now, both of these roles are not hard. They're impossible. They're impossible, aren't they? I know right now all of you are thinking that are married, I fall woefully short of the standard. If you're not thinking that, you are nuts. I don't know out of touch, because none of us meet the standard. But not only does Christ provide the standard, 
he also provides forgiveness, grace, and empowerment to all of us to fulfill these roles. Husbands, because Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you're forgiven of all your shortcomings and failures as a husband, and the power of sin is broken in you, and you have access to the Holy Spirit, which means that you do have the power to take up your cross daily and love and serve your wife. And wives, God forgives you as well, and God empowers you, fills you with the Spirit because Christ died for you, and you have grace and strength available to you to follow your husband's lead even when it's scary. And by the way, if your husband is a jerk and he's abusing you, please come talk to the elders and we'll perform church discipline on him. We're here to protect you, wives. Now, there's a process involved there, a long process, but we wanna protect women from abusive men. But the bottom line is, husband and wife have been given everything they need, forgiveness, grace, and power to glorify the gospel of Jesus Christ in their marriage here on planet Earth. That's why you're here, to glorify his great name. And you can do that in the context of marriage, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. What would it look like if all the marriages in this church accurately reflected Christ and the church? What would it look like if husbands pursued their wives through romance, communication, love and service, cultivating friendship with their wives and intimacy with their wives, providing well for their wives and praying for their wives, what would that look like? What would it look like if wives joyfully submitted to their husbands and supported them and followed their leadership even when it's difficult? What would a lost and dying world see if that was actually happening, they would see joy and love and peace and a glorious picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Marriage was designed not for your happiness primarily, but primarily to glorify and magnify and paint a picture of Christ's love and his relationship with the church. What would children see if this were happening? How would children respond to this were happening? Children would say, when I grow up, that's what I want, what my parents have. They love each other. There's laughter in our home. There's romance. There's joy. I want what my parents have. And that's possible by the grace of God. As glorious as marriage is, it is not the ultimate, which brings us to the fourth and final scene in this great drama of redemption. So marriage at creation, marriage after the fall, marriage after redemption, and finally, marriage in the new creation, or marriage in heaven. Revelation 19, six to nine says this, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a mighty, mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. Genesis chapter one and two, Adam and Eve get married. 
At the very end of the Bible, we read about here the glorious marriage supper of the Lamb. God loves weddings, and he loves marriage. But you and I will not be married in heaven. Luke 20, 34 to 35. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but the sons who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. If God loves weddings so much, why would we not be married in heaven? Marriage in this life, even the best marriages, are meant to give us a small foretaste of the joy we'll experience knowing Christ for all eternity. The joy that you experienced in the healthiest and in the strongest marriages are like a small cup of water compared to the vast ocean of joy you'll experience in the new creation and glorified resurrection bodies knowing the triune God. The joy and intimacy of marriage is meant to point us to that much greater and fuller and richer relationship. The only marriage in heaven is the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. If you never get married in this life and you're trusting Jesus, you will someday experience greater joy in heaven than the happiest, healthiest marriages ever experience on planet Earth. Which means, by the way, that being single does not mean you are second class in the kingdom of God. More on that next week. But marriage is not ultimate. Although it's glorious, it's not ultimate. It points us to a much more glorious relationship. We've looked at four things. Marriage at creation, marriage at the fall, marriage after redemption, and marriage in heaven. Marriage is the foundation of all civilization. Marriage leads to joy and flourishing. Marriage is meant to be a glorious picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not married, I would highly recommend marriage someday. Marriage is glorious. As a result, Satan is intent on destroying marriage. But Jesus Christ and his life, his death, and his resurrection destroy the power of Satan and enables us through the gospel of Jesus Christ to glorify him in the context of our earthly marriages, all for his praise and glory. Let's pray.